Chapter 7 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 7, Part 1, Ali Pasha by Alexander Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The French commander, Nicole, surnamed The Pilgrim, on account of a journey he had once made to Mecca, had spent six months at Yanina with a brigade of artillery which General Marmont, then commanding in the Illyrian provinces, had for a time placed at Ali's disposal. The old officer had acquired the esteem and friendship of the pasha, whose leisure he had often amused by stories of his campaigns and various adventures, and although it was now long since they had met, he still had the reputation of being Ali's friend. Ali prepared his plans accordingly. He wrote a letter to Colonel Nicole, apparently in continuation of a regular correspondence between them in which he thanked the colonel for his continued affection, and besought him by various powerful motives to surrender Parga, of which he promised him the governorship during the rest of his life. He took good care to complete his treason by allowing the letter to fall into the hands of the chief ecclesiastics of Parga, who fell head foremost into the trap. Seeing that the tone of the letter was in perfect accordance with the former friendly relations between their French governor and the pasha, they were convinced of the former's treachery. But the result was not as Ali had hoped. The Parganiotes resumed their former negotiations with the English, preferring to place their freedom in the hands of a Christian nation rather than to fall under the rule of a Mohammedan satrap. The English immediately sent a messenger to Colonel Nicole, offering honorable conditions of capitulation. The colonel returned a decided refusal, and threatened to blow up the place if the inhabitants, whose intentions he guessed, made the slightest hostile movement. However, a few days later the citadel was taken at night, owing to the treachery of a woman who admitted an English detachment, and the next day, to the general astonishment, the British standard floated over the Acropolis of Parca. All Greece was then profoundly stirred by a faint gleam of the dawn of liberty, and shaken by a suppressed agitation. The Bourbons again reigned in France, and the Greeks built a thousand hopes on an event which changed the basis of the whole European policy. Above all, they reckoned on powerful assistance from Russia. But England had already begun to dread anything which could increase either the possessions or the influence of this formidable power. Above all, she was determined that the Ottoman Empire should remain intact, and that the Greek navy, beginning to be formidable, must be destroyed. With these objects in view, negotiations with Ali Pasha were resumed. The latter was still smarting under his recent disappointment, and to all overtures answered only, Parga! I must have Parga! and the English were compelled to yield it. Trusting to the word of General Campbell, who had formally promised on its surrender that Parga should be classed along with the seven Ionian Isles, its grateful inhabitants were enjoying a delicious rest after the storm, when a letter from the Lord High Commissioner, addressed to Lieutenant Colonel de Bosset, undeceived them, and gave warning of the evils which were to burst on the unhappy town. On the 25th of March, 1817, notwithstanding the solemn promise made to the Parganiotes, when they admitted the British troops that they should always be on the same footing as the Ionian Isles, a treaty was signed at Constantinople by the British plenipotentiary, which stipulated the complete and stipulated secession of Parga and all its territories to the Ottoman Empire. Soon there arrived at Yanina Sir John Cartwright, the English consul at Patras, to arrange for the sale of the lands of the Parganiotes and discuss the conditions of their emigration. Never before had any such compact disgraced European diplomacy, 
accustomed hitherto to regard Turkish encroachments as simple sacrilege. But Ali Pasha fascinated the English agents, overwhelming them with favors, honors, and feasts, carefully watching them all the while. Their correspondence was intercepted, and he endeavored by means of his agents to rouse the Parganiotes against them. The latter lamented bitterly and appealed to Christian Europe, which remained deaf to their cries. In the name of their ancestors, they demanded the rights which had been guaranteed them. "'They will buy our lands,' they said. "'Have we asked to sell them? And even if we received their value, can gold give us a country and the tombs of our ancestors?' Ali Pasha invited the Lord High Commissioner of Great Britain, Sir Thomas Maitland, to a conference at Prevesa and complained of the exorbitant price of one million five hundred thousand, at which the commissioners had estimated Parga and its territory, including private property and church furniture. It had been hoped that Ali's avarice would hesitate at this high price, but he was not so easily discouraged. He gave a banquet for the Lord High Commissioner, which degenerated into a shameless orgy. In the midst of this drunken hilarity, the Turk and the Englishman disposed of the territory of Parga, agreeing that a fresh estimate should be made on the spot by experts chosen by both English and Turks. The result of this valuation was that the indemnity granted to the Christians was reduced by the English to the sum of 276,075 sterling, instead of the original 500,000. And as Ali's agents only arrived at the sum of 56,750, a final conference was held at Bothrotum between Ali and the Lord High Commissioner. The latter then informed the Parganiotes that the indemnity allowed them was irrevocably fixed at 150,000. The transaction is a disgrace to the egotistical and venal nation which thus allowed the life and liberty of a people to be trifled with, a lasting blot on the honor of England. The Parganiotes at first could believe neither in the infamy of their protectors nor in their own misfortune, but both were soon confirmed by a proclamation of the Lord High Commissioner, informing them that the Pasha's army was marching to take possession of the territory, which by May 10th must be abandoned forever. The fields were then in full bearing. In the midst of plains ripening for a rich harvest were 80,000 square feet of olive trees, alone estimated at 200,000 guineas. The sun shone in cloudless azure, the air was balmy with the scent of orange trees, of pomegranates and citrons, but the lovely country might have been inhabited by phantoms. Only hands raised to heaven and brows bent to the dust met one's eyes. Even the very dust belonged no more to the wretched inhabitants. They were forbidden to take a fruit or a flower. The priests might not remove either relics or sacred images. Church, ornaments, torches, tapers, pyxes had by this treaty all become Mohammedan property. The English had sold everything, even to the host. Two days more, and all must be left. Each was silently marking the door of the dwelling destined so soon to shelter an enemy with a red cross, when suddenly a terrible cry echoed from street to street, for the Turks had been perceived on the heights overlooking the town. Terrified and despairing, the whole population hastened to fall prostrate before the Virgin of Parga, the ancient guardian of their citadel. A mysterious voice, proceeding from the sanctuary, reminded them that the English had, in their iniquitous treaty, forgotten to include the ashes of those whom a happier fate had spared the sight of the ruin of Parga. Instantly they rushed to the graveyards, tore open the tombs, and collected the bones and putrefying corpses. 
the beautiful olive trees were felled an enormous funeral pyre arose and in the general excitement the orders of the english chief were defied with naked daggers in their hands standing in the crimson light of the flames which were consuming the bones of their ancestors the people of parga vowed to slay their wives and children and to kill themselves to the last man if the infidels dared to set foot in the town before the appointed hour xenocles the last of the greek poets inspired by this sublime manifestation of despair even as jeremiah by the fall of jerusalem improvised a hymn which expresses all the griefs of the exiles and which the exiles interrupted by their tears and sobs a messenger crossing the sea in all haste informed the lord high commissioner of the terrible threat of the parganiotes he started at once accompanied by general sir frederick adams and landed at parga by the light of the funeral pyre he was received with ill-concealed indignation and with assurances that the sacrifice would be at once consummated unless ali's troops were held back the general endeavored to console and to reassure the unhappy people and then proceeded to the outposts traversing silent streets in which armed men stood at each door only waiting a signal before slaying their families and then turning their weapons against the english and themselves he implored them to have patience and they answered by pointing to the approaching turkish army and bidding him hasten he arrived at last and commenced negotiations and the turkish officers no less uneasy than the english garrison promised to wait till the appointed hour the next day passed in mournful silence quiet as death at sunset on the following day may ninth eighteen nineteen the english standard on the castle of pargo was hauled down and after a night spent in prayer and weeping the christians demanded the signal of departure they had left their dwellings at break of day and scattering on the shore endeavored to collect some relics of their country some filled little bags with ashes withdrawn from the funeral pile others took handfuls of earth while the women and children picked up pebbles which they hid in their clothing and pressed to their bosoms as if fearing to be deprived of them meanwhile the ships intended to transport them arrived and armed english soldiers superintended the embarkation which the turks hailed from afar with ferocious cries parganiotes were landed in corfu where they suffered yet more injustice under various pretexts the money promised them was reduced and withheld until destitution compelled them to accept the little that was offered thus closed one of the most odious transactions which modern history has been compelled to record the satrap of yanina had arrived at the fulfilment of his wishes in the retirement of his fairy-like palace by the lake he could enjoy voluptuous pleasures to the fool but already seventy-eight years had passed over his head and old age had laid the burden of infirmity upon him his dreams were dreams of blood and vainly he sought refuge in chambers glittering with gold adorned with arabesques decorated with costly armor and covered with the richest of oriental carpets remorse stood ever beside him through the magnificence which surrounded him there constantly passed the gale spectre of emina leading onwards a vast procession of mournful phantoms and the guilty pasha buried his face in his hands and shrieked aloud for help sometimes ashamed of his weakness he endeavored to defy both the reproaches of his conscience and the opinion of the multitude and sought to encounter criticism with bravado if by chance he overheard some blind singer chanting in the streets the satirical verses which faithful to the poetical and mocking genius of them ancestors the greeks frequently composed about him 
he would order the singer to be brought would bid him repeat his verses and applauding him would relate some fresh anecdote of cruelty saying go add that to thy tale let thy hearers know what i can do let them understand that i stop at nothing in order to overcome my foes if i reproach myself with anything it is only with the deeds i have sometimes failed to carry out sometimes it was the terrors of the life after death which assailed him the thought of eternity brought terrible visions in its trains and ali shuddered at the prospect of al sirat that awful bridge narrow as a spider's thread and hanging over the furnaces of hell which a mussulman must cross in order to arrive at the gate of paradise he ceased to joke about iblis the prince of evil and sank by degrees into profound superstition he was surrounded by magicians and soothsayers he consulted omens and demanded talismans and charms from the dervishes which he had either sewn into his garments or suspended in the most secret parts of his palace in order to avert evil influences a koran was hung about his neck as a defence against the evil eye and frequently he removed it and knelt before it as did louis the eleventh before the leaden figures of saints which adorned his hat he ordered a complete chemical laboratory from venice and engaged alchemists to distill the water of immortality by the help of which he hoped to ascend to the planets and discover the philosopher's stone not perceiving any practical result of their labors he ordered the laboratory to be burnt and the alchemists to be hung ali hated his fellow-men he would have liked to leave no survivors and often regretted his inability to destroy all those who would have cause to rejoice at his death consequently he sought to accomplish as much harm as he could during the time which remained to him and for no possible reason but that of hatred he caused the arrest of both ibrahim pasha who had already suffered so much at his hands and his son and confined them both in a dungeon purposely constructed under the grand staircase of the castle by the lake in order that he might have the pleasure of passing over their heads each time he left his apartments or returned to them it was not enough for ali merely to put to death those who had displeased him the form of punishment must be constantly varied in order to produce a fresh mode of suffering therefore new tortures had to be constantly invented now it was a servant guilty of absence without leave who was bound to a stake in the presence of his sister and destroyed by a cannon placed six paces off but only loaded with powder in order to prolong the agony now a christian accused of having tried to blow up yanina by introducing mice with tinder fastened to their tails into the powder magazine who was shut up in the cage of ali's favorite tiger and devoured by it the pasha despised the human race as much as he hated it a european having reproached him with cruelty shown to his subjects ali replied you do not understand the race with which i have to deal were i to hang a criminal on yonder tree the sight would not deter even his own brother from stealing in the crowd at its foot if i had an old man burnt alive his son would steal the ashes and sell them oh, the rabble can be governed by fear only and i am the one man who does it successfully his conduct perfectly corresponded to his ideas one great feast day two gypsies devoted their lives in order to avert the evil destiny of the pasha and solemnly convoking on their own heads all misfortunes which might possibly befall him cast themselves down from the palace roof one arose without difficulty stunned and suffering 
The other remained on the ground with a broken leg. Ali gave them each forty francs and an annuity of two pounds of maize daily, and considering this sufficient, took no further trouble about them. Every year at Ramadan, a large sum was distributed in alms among poor women without distinction of sect. But Ali contrived to change this act of benevolence into a barbarous form of amusement. As he possessed several palaces in Yanina at a considerable distance from each other, the one at which a distribution was to take place was each day publicly announced, and when the women had waited there for an hour or two exposed to the sun, rain or cold as the case might be, they were suddenly informed that they must go to some other palace at the opposite end of the town. When they got there, they usually had to wait for another hour, fortunate if they were not sent off to a third place of meeting. When the time at length arrived, a eunuch appeared, followed by Albanian soldiers armed with staves carrying a bag of money, which he threw by handfuls right into the midst of the assembly. Then began a terrible uproar. The women rushed to catch it, upsetting each other, quarreling, fighting, and uttering cries of terror and pain, while the Albanians, pretending to enforce order, pushed into the crowd, striking right and left with their batons. The pasha, meanwhile, sat at a window enjoying the spectacle, and impartially applauding all well-delivered blows, no matter whence they came. During these distributions, which really benefited no one, many women were always severely hurt, and some died from the blows they had received. Ali maintained several carriages for himself and his family, but allowed no one else to share in this prerogative. To avoid being jolted, he simply took up the pavement in Yanina and the neighboring towns with the result that in summer one was choked by dust, and in winter one could hardly get through the mud. He rejoiced in the public inconvenience, and one day, having to go out in heavy rain, he remarked to one of the officers of his escort, "'How delightful to be driven through this in a carriage, while you will have the pleasure of following on horseback!' you will be wet and dirty whilst i smoke my pipe and laugh at your condition he could not understand why western sovereigns should permit their subjects to enjoy the same conveniences and amusements as themselves if i had a theatre he said i would allow no one to be present at performances except my own children but these idiotic christians do not know how to uphold their own dignity there was no end to the mystifications which it amused the pasha to carry out with those who approached him one day he chose to speak turkish to a maltese merchant who came to display some jewels he was informed that the merchant understood only greek and italian he none the less continued his discourse without allowing anyone to translate what he said into greek the Maltese at length lost patience, shut up his cases, and departed. Ali watched him with the utmost calm, and as he went out, told him, still in Turkish, to come again the next day. An unexpected occurrence seemed, like the warning finger of destiny, to indicate an evil omen for the Pasha's future. Misfortunes arrive in troops, says the forcible Turkish proverb, and a forerunner of disasters came to Ali Pasha. One morning he was suddenly roused by the sheik Yusuf, who had forced his way in in spite of the guards. "'Behold,' said he, handing Ali a letter, "'Allah, who punishes the guilty, has permitted thy seraglio of Tepelen to be burnt. Thy splendid palace, thy beautiful furniture, costly stuffs, cashmeres, furs, arms, all are destroyed, 
and it is thy youngest and best beloved son, Salik Bey himself, whose hand kindled the flames. So saying, Yusuf turned and departed, crying with a triumphant voice, Fire! 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 And Ali instantly ordered his horse, and followed by his guards, rode without drawing rein to Tepelen. As soon as he arrived at the place where his palace had formerly insulted the public misery, he hastened to examine the cellars where his treasures were deposited. All was intact. Silver plate, jewels, and fifty millions of francs in gold, enclosed in a well over which he had caused a tower to be built. After this examination, he ordered all the ashes to be carefully sifted in hopes of recovering the gold in the tassels and fringes of the sofas, and the silver from the plate and the armor. He next proclaimed, through the length and breadth of the land, that being by the hand of Allah deprived of his house, and no longer possessing anything in his native town, he requested all who loved him to prove their affection by bringing help in proportion. He fixed the day of reception for each commune, and for almost each individual of any rank, however small, according to their distance from Tepelen, whither these evidences of loyalty were to be brought. During five days, Ali received these forced benevolences from all parts. He sat covered with rags on a shabby palm-leaf mat placed at the outer gate of his ruined palace, holding in his left hand a villainous pipe of the kind used by the lowest people, and in his right an old red cap, which he extended for the donations of the passers-by. Behind stood a Jew from Yanina charged with the office of testing each piece of gold and valuing jewels which were offered instead of money, for in terror each endeavored to appear generous. No means of obtaining a rich harvest were neglected. For instance, Ali distributed secretly large sums among poor and obscure people, such as servants, mechanics, and soldiers, in order that by returning them in public they might appear to be making great sacrifices, so that richer and more distinguished persons could not, without appearing ill-disposed towards the pasha, offer only the same amount as did the poor, but were obliged to present gifts of enormous value. After this charity extorted from their fears, the pasha's subjects hoped to be at peace, but a new decree proclaimed throughout Albania required them to rebuild and refurnish the formidable palace of Tepelen entirely at the public expense. Ali then returned to Yanina, followed by his treasure and a few women who had escaped from the flames, and whom he disposed of amongst his friends, saying that he was no longer sufficiently wealthy to maintain so many slaves. Fate soon provided him with a second opportunity for amassing wealth. Arta, a wealthy town with a Christian population was ravaged by the plague, and out of 8,000 inhabitants, 7,000 were swept away. Hearing this, Ali hastened to send commissioners to prepare an account of furniture and lands which the pasha claimed as being heir to his subjects. A few livid and emaciated specters were yet to be found in the streets of Arta. In order that the inventory might be more complete, these unhappy beings were compelled to wash in the Inachus blankets, sheets, and clothes steeped in bubonic infection, while the collectors were hunting everywhere for imaginary hidden treasure. Hollow trees were sounded, walls pulled down, the most unlikely corners examined, and a skeleton which was discovered still girt with a belt containing Venetian sequins was gathered up with the utmost care. The archons of the town were arrested and tortured in the hope of discovering buried treasure, the clue to which had disappeared along with the owners. 
One of these magistrates, accused of having hidden some valuable objects, was plunged up to his shoulders in a boiler full of melted lead and boiling oil. Old men, women, children, rich and poor alike, were interrogated, beaten, and compelled to abandon the last remains of their property in order to save their lives. Having thus decimated the few inhabitants remaining to the town, it became necessary to repeople it. With this object in view, Ali's emissaries overran the villages of Thessaly, driving before them all the people they met in flocks, and compelling them to settle in Arta. These unfortunate colonists were also obliged to find money to pay the pasha for the houses they were forced to occupy. This business being settled, Ali turned to another which had long been on his mind. We have seen how Ismail Pasho Bey escaped the assassin sent to murder him. A ship, dispatched secretly from Prevesa, arrived at the palace of his retreat. The captain, posing as a merchant, invited Ismail to come on board and inspect his goods. But the latter, guessing a trap, fled promptly, and for some time all trace of him was lost. Ali, in revenge, turned his wife out of the palace at Yanina, which she still occupied, and placed her in a cottage, where she was obliged to earn a living by spinning. But he did not stop there, and learning after some time that Pasho Bey had sought refuge with the Nazir of Drama, who had taken him into favor, he resolved to strike a last blow, more sure and more terrible than the others. Again, Ismail's lucky star saved him from the plots of his enemy. During a hunting party, he encountered a Kapijibachi, or messenger from the sultan, who asked him where he could find the Nazir, to whom he was charged with an important communication. As Kabijibachis are frequently bearers of evil tidings, which it is well to ascertain at once, and as the Nazir was at some distance, Pasho Bey assumed the latter's part, and the sultan's confidential messenger informed him that he was the bearer of a firman granted at the request of Ali Pasha of Yanina. Ali of Tepelinir, he is my friend. How can I serve him? by executing the present order sent you by the divan desiring you to behead a traitor named pacho bey who crept into your service a short time ago uh, w willingly i but he is not an easy man to seize being brave vigorous clever and cunning craft will be necessary in this case he may appear at any moment and it is advisable that he should not see you let no one suspect who you are but go to drama which is only two hours distant, and await me there. I shall return this evening, and you can consider your errand as accomplished. The Kabijibachi made a sign of comprehension and directed his course toward drama, while Ismail, fearing that the Nazir, who had only known him a short time, would sacrifice him with the usual Turkish indifference, fled in the opposite direction. At the end of an hour, he encountered a Bulgarian monk with whom he exchanged clothes, a disguise which enabled him to traverse Upper Macedonia in safety. Arriving at the great Servian convent in the mountains whence the Oxius takes its rise, he obtained admission under an assumed name. But feeling sure of the discretion of the monks, after a few days he explained his situation to them. Ali, learning the ill success of his latest stratagem, accused the Nazir of conniving at Pasho Bey's escape. But the latter easily justified himself with the divan by giving precise information of what had really occurred. This was what Ali wanted, who profited thereby in having the fugitive's track followed up, and soon got wind of his retreat. As Pasho Bey's innocence had been proved in the explanations given to the port, 
the death Furman obtained against him became useless, and Ali affected to abandon him to his fate in order the better to conceal the new plot he was conceiving against him. Athanasius Vaya, a chief assassin of the Kardikiotes, to whom Ali imparted his present plan for the destruction of Ismael, begged for the honor of putting it into execution, swearing that this time Ismael should not escape. The master and the instrument disguised their scheme under the appearance of a quarrel, which astonished the whole town. At the end of a terrible scene which took place in public, Ali drove the confidant of his crimes from the palace, overwhelming him with insults and declaring that were Athanasius not the son of his children's foster-mother, he would have sent him to the gibbet. He enforced his words by the application of a stick, and Vaya, apparently overwhelmed by terror and affliction, went round to all the nobles of the town, vainly entreating them to intercede for him. The only favor which Mukhtar Pasha could obtain for him was a sentence of exile, allowing him to retreat to Macedonia. Athanasius departed from Yanina with all the demonstrations of utter despair, and continued his route with haste of one who fears pursuit. Arrived in Macedonia, he assumed the habit of a monk, and undertook a pilgrimage to Mount Athos, saying that both the disguise and the journey were necessary to his safety. On the way he encountered one of the itinerant friars of the great Servian convent, to whom he described his disgrace in energetic terms, begging him to obtain his admission among the lay brethren of his monastery. Delighted at the prospect of bringing back to the fold of the church a man so notorious for his crimes, the friar hastened to inform his superior, who in his turn lost no time in announcing to Pasho Bey that his compatriot and companion in misfortune was to be received among the lay brethren, and in relating the history of Athanasius as he himself had heard it. Pasho Bey, however, was not easily deceived, and at once guessing that Vaya's real object was his own assassination, told his doubts to the superior, who had already received him as a friend. The latter retarded the reception of Vaya so as to give Pasho time to escape and take the road to Constantinople. Once arrived there, he determined to brave the storm and encounter Ali openly. Endowed by nature with a noble presence and with masculine firmness, Pasho Bey possessed also the valuable gift of speaking all the various tongues of the Ottoman Empire. He could not fail to distinguish himself in the capital and to find an opening for his great talents. But his inclination drove him at first to seek his fellow exiles from Epirus, who were either his old companions in arms, friends of relations, for he was allied to all the principal families and was even through his wife nearly connected with his enemy Ali Pasha himself. He had learned what this unfortunate lady had already endured on his account, and feared that she would yet suffer more if he took active measures against the pasha. While he yet hesitated between affection and revenge, he heard that she had died of grief and misery. Now that despair had put an end to uncertainty, he set his hand to the work. At this precise moment, heaven sent him a friend to console and aid him in his vengeance, a Christian from Italia, Paleopulo by name. This man was on the point of establishing himself in Russian Bessarabia, when he met Pasho Bey and joined with him in the singular coalition which was to change the fate of the Tepelinian dynasty. Paleopulo reminded his companion in misfortune of a memorial presented to the Divan in 1812, which had brought upon Ali a disgrace from which he only escaped in consequence of the overwhelming political events which just then absorbed the attention of the Ottoman government. 
The Grand Seigneur had sworn by the tombs of his ancestors to attend to the matter as soon as he was able, and it was only requisite to remind him of his vow. Pacho Bey and his friend drew up a new memorial, and knowing the sultan's avarice, took care to dwell on the immense wealth possessed by Ali, on his scandalous exactions, and on the enormous sums diverted from the imperial treasury. By overhauling the accounts of his administration, millions might be recovered. To these financial considerations Pacho Bey added some practical ones. Speaking as a man sure of his facts and well acquainted with the ground, he pledged his head that, with twenty thousand men, he would, in spite of Ali's troops and strongholds, arrive before Yanina without firing a musket. However good these plans appeared, they were by no means to the taste of the sultan's ministers, who were each and all in receipt of large pensions from the man at whom they struck. Besides, as in Turkey it is customary for the great fortunes of government officials to be absorbed on their death by the imperial treasury, it of course appeared easier to await the natural inheritance of Ali's treasures than to attempt to seize them by a war, which would only certainly absorb part of them. Therefore, while Pasho Bey's zeal was commended, he obtained only dilatory answers, followed at length by a formal refusal. Meanwhile, the old Italian, Paleopolo, died, having prophesied the approaching Greek insurrection among his friends, and pledged Pasho Bey to persevere in his plans of vengeance, assuring him that, before long, Ali would certainly fall a victim to them. Thus left alone, Pasho, before taking any active steps in his work of vengeance, affected to give himself up to the strictest observances of the Mohammedan religion. Ali, who had established a most minute surveillance over his actions, finding that his time was spent with ulamas and dervishes, imagined that he had ceased to be dangerous and took no further trouble about him. End of chapter 7 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia